Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Edward Cohn about his book, The High Title of a Communist, Post-War Party Discipline and the Values of the Soviet Regime, published by Northern Illinois University Press. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Amanda Jean Swain, at the University of California, Irvine. Today, we'll be talking with Edward Cohn about his book, The High Title of a Communist, Post-War Party Discipline, and the Values of the Soviet Regime, published by Northern Illinois University Press. So welcome to New Books in Russian Studies, Ed. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, this is actually a repeat performance. We had a bit of a technical difficulty the first time. So we had a practice session in some ways for this interview, but I think this, um, this version of it will be equally as good. So as a more detailed introduction, please tell us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in studying Russia. That's a good question where, you know, it's obviously always hard to point to a specific origin of something like this. I guess what I'd say is two things. One is back when I was um, in elementary school, my family spent six months in West Germany. And that meant that this was soon before the Berlin Wall fell. So I did some traveling in the area, went to East Germany for a day at one point, to East Berlin. And that meant that when I got back to the U.S. and I was you know, in middle school, I ended up paying a lot more attention to events in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union than I ever would have been under normal circumstances, I think it's fair to say. So I think that sort of captured my interest seeing the region. And then I always like to tell my students the story of how in August 1991, I'm just starting high school, or I'm just about to start high school, I'm at a family reunion in Chicago. And, you know, we're there at a dinner or something until fairly late. I get back to my hotel room, I turn on the television, and the first words I hear are, um, we'll, tell you, we'll tell you more about the apparent coup in the Soviet Union later in tonight's broadcast. But when we, bring, but when we come back, we'll bring you to the iguana races at the Illinois State's Fair. And, you know, of course, you know, if I hadn't recently, you know, spent some time in Germany and been to East Berlin and stuff, I don't think I would have been particularly interested in, you know, the Soviet Union as someone just starting high school at that point. But, you know, I like to say that I was so frustrated not to get to hear about this coup um, going on in the Soviet Union that I've been trying to find out more about the Soviet Union ever since. Although iguana races does sound extremely exciting. so Yeah, uh, surprisingly so. <laughs> okay, it makes, it, it makes the news at least. Um, so what got you interested specifically at looking at the Communist Party and Communist Party membership? And tell us about the archival sources that you used for this research project. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of different projects, this one evolved and shifted over time. Where at the beginning, well, I'll say that this was originally my doctoral dissertation at the University of Chicago. And my original plan 
had been to write about sort of the reconstruction of the party apparatus and the state bureaucracy after the Great Purges and before World War II. So sort of in this 1939 to 1941 period, which was a topic that really interested me and still interests me now. But as a grad student, when I first went to the archives, I just didn't find the material I needed. You know, I would have needed to get into personnel files that were still classified. There were various issues like that so I decided to shift gears. So f- then I was going to l- work on party discipline and party control right after the Great Purges. But in part based on the sources that were available to me, I ended up shifting gears and looking at party discipline and party control and what those say about sort of the values of the regime and about sort of what it meant to be a good communist after World War II where I found just far richer and more, you know, more interesting sources than I was finding for a better earlier period. So I'd say that the sources I used could roughly be broken down into a couple categories. I spent a bunch of time in Moscow looking at records of the Commission of Party Control, which would have, whenever a communist was expelled from the Communist Party and wanted to get back in, they'd send an appeal to Moscow, making their case for why they should still be allowed to be a member of the Communist Party. So I looked at those records, as well as of, at reports from the Commission of Party Control on issues in you know, party discipline and party morality more broadly, and at you know, various central records connected to you know, the Communist Party and its inner workings in Moscow. But a majority of my research took place on the provincial level. That's because um, expulsion from the Communist Party takes place at that level. You know, the way the process works, if you're accused of misconduct and you're a member of the Communist Party in this period in history, first your local party cell and your workplace would investigate you, then it would go to the district or the city, and then eventually to the, to the provincial party, you know, organization. And if they expelled you, that case became, you know, final, unless you won on appeal. So that the best place to get these records was at the provincial level. So I spent time in a couple different cities in Russia. Um, I did a very little bit of work in Saratov, down on the Volga River. I did some work in Tver, not too far from Moscow, on the upper Volga. And I also spent a bunch of time in Perm, in the Ural Mountains. You know, I spent a couple months just reading Communist Party case files of people who had been accused of one form of misconduct or another and were expelled from, from the party as a result. And I did follow-up research, for instance, in Ukraine, um, in, in Kiev, um, a couple of years after I finished the dissertation. So I'd say a lot of the a lot of my sources come from these local-level files that are sort of compiled at the provincial level. They just go through the case. They have the case file from investigators. They have you know there'd be a hearing in all of these cases. So you'd see what the accused communist said. You'd see what their accuser said. And you'd see what the other communists in the organization said, since this was meant to be a participatory process, where they even said explicitly that this isn't like, you know, a criminal trial where you don't want, where, you know, where biases can be, you know, a problem. This is a case where they wanted the communists who knew their colleagues best. They wanted them to be able to say what their comrades were like and really make a decision on their morality and their ethics and on whether they deserve to be, to be a member of the Communist Party, based most of all, of course, on the issues in the case, but based on the knowledge of everyone in you know, the party organization 
And in turn, they also wanted to send a message to the party organization about what it meant to be a good communist. So I got to read a number of different perspectives on party discipline through these sorts of records. Mm-hmm. And that level of detail is really evident in the book. And I think one one of the factors that makes this book particularly interesting is the 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 daily lives of communist members that we get a glimpse of um, through these um, the various people that you um, tell their stories as as you're um, going through this analysis. So that um, those archives, the archival work itself, is um, I think a particularly um, uh, of interest in this book. Uh, but to move on now to the actual um, content and this high title of communists and expulsion from the Communist Party, the 18th Party Congress in March 1939 marked the end of the Great Purges and a ma- major change in party rhetoric about the definition of a good communist. How and why did party discipline begin to change under Stalin in the aftermath of World War II? So there are a couple of pretty big changes that come at this party congress in 1939. Well, add, of course, that you can easily point to sort of signs that things may have been changing anyway ahead of that time. Um, you know, changes in, for instance, you know, what Communist Party officials or Stalin said about, you know, the class background of communists and things like that. But they kind of come to a head in 1939. As you mentioned, the purges are ending at that particular moment. So that one big change was that, you know, at this Congress, they vote that expulsion from the party should be, as they put it, an individual matter. They're not going to hold these periodic mass purges in which large numbers of communists are expelled at once. They're going to have a system where, you know, basically the only way you'll be expelled will be if someone accuses you of some specific incident of misconduct and then you'll be investigated and expelled. So just to give a little more detail on that, you know, leave aside the great purges of like 38 to 39, there had been major sort of, you know, mass purges of the party ever since the early 1920s, where something like 10% of all communists might be expelled from party all at once. There'd be sort of a mass investigation of everyone where they check into check into party records, you know, they'd be verifying your party membership and your 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 um, worthiness to be in the party, and lots of people would be expelled as a result. That ends in '39, I think, largely because you know the Great Purges had been this pretty traumatic moment in Soviet history. You know, it was a process that was difficult to control. Arguably, Stalin had gotten what he wanted, or the party had gotten what he wanted, what they wanted. And so at this particular moment in time, it made sense to move on to a more stable system where they wouldn't have these mass purges, a a fact that in turn is going to change a lot of how the party looks at sort of what it means to be a good communist. For instance, um, you know, there's going to be less focus on purity in general. They're going to be, you know, a party purge had usually left the Communist Party more proletarian than it had been before. Now, for instance, social class isn't quite as central to the you know, conception of a good communist as it had been earlier on, which is connected in turn to other changes at this, at this Congress. You know, and a lot of them are pretty small, but to name one example, for instance, they changed the rules on the number of sort of recommendation letters you would need to get into the party. You'd have to have a certain number of testimonials. 
um, from people who were active party members when you wanted to join. And there used to be a difference of a number of these testimonials you needed, depending on whether you were a worker or a white-collar worker and so forth. And they end that change. And so, again, from that point onward, you know, there's a little less focus on social class. And organizationally, the party isn't, you know, again, investigating everyone at once periodically and expelling lots of people, but is going into the details of a particular communist when there's a particular accusation against that communist. And we'll see how that um, happens in these particular cases as we you talk about the book. But um, to follow up on some of the, the big events happening in um, the Soviet Union and the impact on party discipline, um, you argue that Khrushchev's, um, under Khrushchev, the de-Stalinization of party discipline reflects in some ways more the evolving role of the party in Soviet politics and society, and particularly its relationship to the state. Um, how was that changing under Khrushchev, and what impact did it have on party discipline? How is the party's relationship to um, to the state changing? Yes, yeah. Yeah. We're, obviously, there are a couple of pretty huge changes, arguably even bigger than some of these changes in you know, March 1939 at the Congress. There's World War II is reshaping you know, Communist Party membership in lots of different ways. And then the death of Stalin and sort of the, um, you know, the whole process of de-Stalinization and Khrushchev's reforms change that as well. Where I'd say one major argument of the book is that World War II plays a huge and crucial role, you know, an even bigger role than I think has often been assumed in shaping ideas of what it means to be a communist, changing, for instance, you know, um, the class makeup of the party and, and making changes like that. So that by the late 1940s, I argue, fewer people are being expelled for things like, you know, having, you know, um, politically incorrect opinions or expressing anti-Soviet ideas far fewer than before the war. And I, I think it's striking that relatively few people are expelled from the party for, you know, political issues in the late 40s uh, political issues, meaning you're expressing opinions that the party wouldn't want them to. Um, obviously, there are exceptions to that. You know, there's you know the Leningrad affair and various sort of very localized purges. But um, you know, the party itself is less focused on sort of political ideology at this moment in time in its conception of what makes a good communist, and more interested in other issues instead. So that you know, to get back to you know the heart of your question, under Khrushchev. There's some pretty big organizational changes as well. Um, you know, obviously, this is a period when the party is repudiating parts of the legacy of Stalin. You know, they are attacking the Great Purges, for example. Um, and so they really want to de-emphasize things like expulsion from the party. So that in 1961, to name one example, there's a change in the party discipline process where instead of being expelled by a majority vote, of your primary party organization. You can only be expelled from the communist party by a two thirds vote of the primary party organization. There's kind of a de-emphasis on, um, on just the practice of expulsion. So that the expulsion rate was already much lower by the time Stalin died than it had been earlier, but it falls again quite noticeably after he dies and under Nikita Khrushchev. So that you get a situation where 
you know, disciplinary hearings within the party are still a major way of trying to shape, you know, ideas of what, what it's suitable for communists to do. Any communist of the Soviet Union, for example, would go to plenty of these hearings, would be expected to participate in them as a witness or as someone speaking about what it means to be a good communist. But the threat of actual expulsion has gone down, especially, you know, for instance, on you know, political-type issues. Again, it's hard to come up with a shorthand for this, but, you know, on political disagreements and things. Um, and that's a change that begins before Khrushchev dies, but gets reconfirmed and accentuated in the years after 1956, when Khrushchev gives his secret speech. And how does this reflect the relationship between the party and the state or the party and um, Soviet society at this time? I mean, for the latter part of the question, on the relationship between sort of, um, you know, the, the party and society, I think in various ways, there's a shift, again, in the nature of in the demographics of what a communist is. So that by the time Stalin dies, a majority of the Communist Party has become white-collar workers for the first time in Soviet history. So that I think, you know, that's not representative of the country as a whole, um, but it's a change in sort of how sort of the most activist members of society, who they're perceived to be. Um, and, you know, under Khrushchev, there's, there's some struggles to try to, you know, define what it means to be a good communist again in terms of demographics. He wants to shift back toward a party that's more proletarian and increase the number of peasants in it. So, you know, the party loses its white-collar majority, but um, at that moment in time, um, it's still it's still much more white-collar than it had been, you know, before 1939. And so I think that the nature of who's in the party is shifting. That leads to something of a shift in the idea of how you get ahead in society. You know, um, a good way to advance, you know, if you're a worker, you know, through the party, that kind of thing. You know, ideally, that was the message they'd wanted to send earlier. Now, I think, in various ways, the Communist Party is becoming more bureaucratic. It's becoming more an administrative organ in different ways. It's becoming, um, you know, you've gotten to the point where, um, you know, um, the best way to advance politically is you know, to be a white-collar worker in various ways. And I think that's a change in how Soviet society works and in the relationship of what the party is trying to do to, you know, to shape society in part you know, through its own you know, um, recruitment policies and things like that. For the society as a whole, part of this is a shift in just the relationship, you know, the, the use of coercion, the use of violence, things like that. Where, of course, to be clear, the Communist Party is still a pretty coercive organization in a lot of different ways. But at least within the Communist Party, it's less likely to use, you know, various forms of coercion than it had been before. Um, you know, obviously the violence of the Great Purges has, you know, mostly disappeared within the party. Um, you get to a point where, you know, even in the late Stalin years, obviously the regime is very repressive towards society as a whole. There are really draconian laws against theft. Theft, excuse me. You know, there are various anti-Semitic policies being pushed. There are various things you can point to that are pretty nasty, coercive policies of the regime. 
But in contrast to the late 30s, the Communist Party itself isn't a major target of that. You know, the expulsion rate's much lower. There are various ways in which the party is party leadership is doing what it can to make sure its members are doing what the regime wants. But that is, over time, a sign of a shift away from more overt sort of, um, you know, repression, for lack of a better word, toward, um, you know, toward other policies of trying to get a regime to do what it wants. And the statistics are that five to seven million communists were disciplined um, by the party either by reprimand, demotion, or expulsion in the 20 years after the war. And you, like other scholars, argue that the Soviet state, the Soviet system became less repressive but more intrusive. And I think we'll see that as we start going through the reasons why um, various people were uh, reprimanded. And um, one of the things that uh, really struck me was that communists were more likely to be expelled for abusing their job than for any other reason. And you argue that party leaders after World War II were not terribly concerned about loyalty or ideological purity. Instead, they were focused on the needs of the state. So how were, what were the needs of the state at this point? And how did this change officials' views of what makes a good communist? Mm-hmm. So at the beginning of the period I look at, right after World War II, the country's, like a lot of Europe, in a state of economic crisis. You know, um, lots of agriculture has been devastated. Industry, you know, has been forced to evacuate and shift, you know, to war production and things. There are a lot of economic problems in the country overall. And so I think one of the main needs of the Soviet regime at this moment of time is just, you know, pushing through some pretty tough, and as I mentioned a moment ago, often draconian policies of control of especially agriculture, but this extends well beyond that. And, you know, to build on a point you just made a moment ago, that something I've been talking about here, um, you know, this process looks less overtly political, again, for lack of a better word, than it had at other moments in Soviet history. Where, for instance, um, you don't see, you see lots of cases of collective farm chairman or people, you know, involved in industry in one way or another who, you know, embezzle funds or, you know, steal produce from the farms they will work on or take building materials to build themselves a dacha or something like that. And early on in the period, I did see a small number of cases in which these people were accused of, you know, pretty dangerous sounding crimes. You know, they were accused of sabotage of the harvest or they were accused of, you know, um, just in one way or another being a threat to the Soviet regime. Those cases were rare even around 1945 to 1946. And after that period, I think that sort of language of sabotage or being a wrecker or anything about being an enemy vanishes pretty much completely for most of these cases. So that in 1947, for instance, there's a law against theft, which a lot of that will be like peasants who steal some grain from the collective farm they live on, something like that. But it includes a lot of cases that are basically embezzlement of, you know, again, often collective farm chairmen, sometimes factory directors or people who do, you know, just steal state money, something like that. 
And, you know, that becomes one of the biggest sources of expulsion from the party from then throughout the period I look at. There are a couple of years in the late 40s, in the mid to late 40s, when like wartime crimes are a bigger deal in terms of numbers. But basically from then onward, the regime is trying, at least in principle, to crack down on people who are putting their own personal needs ahead of those of, you know, the state economy. You know, if you have specific, you know, um, charge most often used is like, I, mean, I guess to translate it, it would be, um, you know, basically misuse of a service position. So you have some position like collective farm chairman or factory director, and you're using it for your gain rather than for the state. That becomes the biggest threat. And of course, there are nuances. I think you're more likely to get into trouble for this. If, you know, your state enterprise is failing, they sometimes look the other way. If, you know, you're doing great and over, you know, fulfilling your norms. But again, especially if there's a chance, if there's evidence that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing for the state and you're doing more than you're supposed to be doing for yourself, that becomes a major source of, you know, accusations of a violation of party discipline. And at the beginning, you talked about using the regional files because that's where the, the cases were handled. But those cases did get sent up, sent up the line, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And there were sometimes tension between local officials and party officials higher up and, and disagreements over whether or not someone should be expelled or punished in some way. So what does this tell us about the differing priorities within the party between mm-hmm. you know regional party organizations and the, the higher levels of, of administration within the, the party. In this chapter on, again, corruption, economic crimes, administrative offenses, things like this, I spent a fair amount of time on one particular dispute or set of arguments, which was between local prosecutors and local party organizations over the right to judge communists who've done something wrong, where The theory here is really clear, which is if you're a communist and you do something wrong that breaks the law, there need to be two investigations. One is the party will look into you and expel you or reprimand you or do whatever it feels is appropriate. The other is if you broke the law, they want to emphasize communists are not above the law and you'll be prosecuted as well. At this moment in time, however, there start to be some pretty bitter arguments between prosecutors and, you know, local party officials over who gets to look into these cases. Where I found a lot of files from prosecutors who'd write to the procuracy in Moscow and basically say local party officials are taking advantage of a recent change in party rules or a couple different recent changes to say that basically no one can be prosecuted if they're a communist, um, unless the party gives its permission. The, the, the principle of the rules was, you know, the party was supposed to investigate first and then send cases to, you know, to prosecutors to look into. Various party officials did decide to use this as, you know, an excuse, this new rule, to basically block any prosecution by saying, you need our official permission and we're not going to give it in this case. So on the one hand, if it were prosecutors, you know, saying that party leaders were, um, you know, trying to take advantage of this rule to block the prosecution of communists for any reason sometimes. 
On the other hand, on the other side, you get party officials, some of whom say, you know, prosecutors are running roughshod over our members and accusing them of crimes and prosecuting them before we have a chance to do anything about it. And what I found in the end, my sense is that there is a decent number of local party officials who do try to block, block prosecutions, sometimes to block the prosecution of their friends, sometimes to do something, you know, a little more, um, you know, um, a little more systematic to block any prosecution of a communist. And, you know, I think this fits in with trends that other scholars have looked at, like Cynthia Hooper, where there's a shift, you know, away from some of these investigations being as deep-seated as you'd expect, as you'd hope if you're a communist interested in fighting corruption and things like that. On the other hand, I often found that party officials didn't notice when their members were being prosecuted. I found a lot of cases where, you know, you'd find a file where someone had been sent to jail for embezzling or whatever, and then a year later, sometimes even more than that, the party would finally get around to expelling them because they hadn't actually noticed. And I think this says something about just sort of the level of disorganization of the Communist Party on the local level at this moment in time. It makes perfect sense, I think, that after World War II, when you know, millions of new Communist Party members are being added, and when the leadership is turning over on the local level, things would be disorganized. And I think that does make it easier for a local party boss to take it upon himself to block prosecutions and you know um, protect members who are in their in his clique and who are doing blatantly illegal things. I think it also meant that sometimes they didn't notice or care when their members were being prosecuted. And that touches on just how chaotic this moment in time was, especially right after the war. But to some degree, through the 1940s and into the 1950s, in terms of just how Communist Party organizations were working. And you also talked about um, that when these files would be sent to um, a higher level, that maybe the local people wanted someone expelled and then mm-hmm. that wouldn't be approved or they didn't want someone expelled. They just wanted them, say, demoted or some kind of punishment. And then the the next level up would say, um, uh, no, this person needs to be expelled. So there seemed to be um, also in that way, um, personal relationships might have been dictating that that the way the regional uh, people who might know the individual party member responded to the misconduct could be different based on their knowledge of that person as opposed to how it was being judged um, by some committee above them. Yeah, there are definitely trends like that going on. There are different things that happen there where you can point to cases where, um, you know, the local party leaders, and by leaders, I even mean the people in a factory are more likely to protect a member who drinks too much and shows up late to work. And, you know, when it goes down the line, it can get reversed. You can point to cases of the opposite where, you know, local, where sort of the mid-level leaders, like the leaders of the district, as opposed to the leaders of the factory, you know, are more likely to step back and say, this guy says he's going to reform. You should give him the chance to do that. Mm -hmm. And you 
spend a lot of time on the book talking about this administrative misconduct, but in some ways the most interesting part is also where this, um, the Soviet regime becomes more intrusive, and that is looking at moral, the moral state of Communist Party members. And um, so you talk a, 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 about a lot of different aspects of this. And um, the first part, I think, wins one of the uh, wins an award for best uh, chapter title when you uh, talk about sex and the married communists. So how was the party starting to look at the personal lives of Communist Party members and to make judgments about their personal lives and in particularly their marriage and family life? Mm-hmm. So this is the theme where, in principle, from the revolution onward, the party had maintained the right to, you know, expel members for whatever reasons, for whatever reason, and had sort of denied the difference between a communist public and private life, saying that, you know, there was a lot of overlap between the two and so forth. In practice, I argue that there's a change, sort of a gradual shift after World War II in which the party gets more and more intrusive in its members, what we'd call its members' private lives, into how much they drink, into the relationship of a communist to his wife, maybe most of all in the relationship between a communist and his children, where I think there are a couple big driving forces here. One of these simply is World War II, which, as you know, had a pretty dramatic effect on the demographics of the Soviet Union. You know, millions of people are killed. Obviously, a bigger number of the people killed in the war were soldiers and were men, which means that there's a, um, you know, there's a gender imbalance after the war. It, it means that a lot of the society is kind of you know, thrown into chaos. And it's a story you get pretty much any time there's a major war, where people rush to get married as the war is beginning, and then move apart during the war, or where somewhere, you know, a marriage gets broken up as a result of the war, or just something like that happens. You know, someone gets dislocated and ends up miles from where he originally was. Things like this happen on a mass scale, and the regime is pretty concerned about it. So that a second thing I, I, I touch on in this chapter is that there's a new family law in 1944 which basically changes rules on things like child support, on, um, on divorce, and things like that. Since, as a colleague of mine, Mian Akachi has shown, the regime was really concerned in that law with increasing the birth rate at all costs. Since, you know, they're, they're pretty worried about this gender imbalance, they're worried about the number of births, and Nakachi shows that the law was surprisingly subtle in how it tried to do that. In that, you know, again, to simplify things a little, when it comes to child support, what it says is that if you're married and you have a kid, then you're responsible for paying for that kid, even if the marriage breaks apart. If you're not married, then, um, then, um, you know, the state will be responsible in various ways. And so... What I find is that the rules is that in party discipline cases, the party gets really concerned with sort of paying attention to the details of that 1944 law. You get lots of cases where women are understandably upset that their husband has left them and is not paying child support. And so they turn to various people to try to get help. 
you know, they turn to, you know, to, to prosecutors, they turn to um, different groups, they turn to the workplace. And most relevantly for me, they turn to the Communist Party to try to get their members to meet their financial obligations. So that early on in this period, um, what you get is that the party has lots of these cases. And a lot of them, the woman actually would prefer to get the husband back, but certainly wants child support payments. And as a result, you know, you get these party hearings where local communists get up and say, you know, um, we have a clear law and you need to obey that law and pay child support. And so early on, the regime is most concerned, I mean, local party organizations are most concerned with, are you meeting your child support requirements? And to some extent, are you paying attention to the, to, you know, the practice of, to the provisions of the law on divorce? Over time, that shifts a little bit. Where again, I think this makes perfect sense that if you start off really concerned about, you know, are you meeting your financial obligation to your children? And you have these hearings where people are talking about this. I think there's a gradual shift over time where, you know, in the late Stalin years, local communists are more likely to, you know, use emotional language and become more likely just to get a little more involved in are you being a good husband in general. And they start to push beyond even what the law requires, so that in cases where, strictly speaking, the state should be responsible for an illegitimate child, you know, you get local communists denouncing their comrades for not doing what they should be in supporting, you know, their illegitimate children and things like that. And so there's a gradual shift of the party getting more involved under Stalin. And then, of course, Stalin dies. And, you know, the main effects it go well beyond this, of course. But, you know, the status of sort of the party's intrusions into its members' lives is shaped by lots of bigger political changes. As I mentioned earlier, the party is paying less attention it is emphasizing expulsion much less than it did before. And so they need new ways to try to get people to do what they want when they're members of the Communist Party. And at the same time, they're more likely to talk about social problems like hooliganism or alcoholism or whatever, child abandonment, than it had been before Stalin died. And that means that, you know, um, they need some way to get communists more involved. So there's much more emphasis on getting communists to speak out when they see people, um, you know, um, abandoning their children, some cases even like abusing their children, treating their wives badly, and so forth. So that I find that you get, you get more sort of newspaper articles urging communists to get more involved here. You get more and more of a focus on, you know, morality in these cases. And, you know, you start to see cases where, you know, often children aren't involved at all. Um, you know, be a, a man who cheats on his wife and, you know, didn't actually have children or where the children are grown up. And so, you know, problems in the marriage are going to be shaping, you know, the upbringing of new citizens in the same way. So, you know, under Khrushchev, you see more of a focus on things like this. You see cases of women who are expelled from the party for sort of being the other woman in an affair for being homewreckers, kind of, to use an American you know, term. And so you start to see the party more involved here. Where I think, ideally, party theorists would, you know, like to motivate communists to shape each other's behavior, and, of course, to shape the behavior of, you know, um, 
all citizens of the Soviet Union. Since, as I think we've mentioned, you know, communists are supposed to be role models and model citizens. I think that because of some of the changes in party discipline, you know, you get cases related to the family holding steady or growing in number at a time when other cases are falling. You get lots of reprimand cases. You get, I think if you're, say, a communist in a fairly large factory organization, you'd have, you'd either directly deal with or hear lots about other cases from the same factory with some frequency about, you know, a man abandoning his wife or abandoning his children, even if those didn't actually lead to expulsion. So this would become sort of a very intrusive part of what the Communist Party does, where local party leaders are called in to be sort of mediators in family disputes and are called to, you know, sort of sometimes represent the wife against the husband at these hearings, which can create a lot of tension in party organizations. You don't, I think, get the party being particularly successful in reshaping the values of its members to the extent that there's a big, ch- that there's a change, in, to the extent that the party succeeds in getting its party members to fight for these sorts of values, I think it ends up being more often that the activists go out and point out problems in the rest of society, and less often that they end up really reshaping, um, you know, what it is that their actual comrades are doing. In part, I think because it's difficult. You know, to go and denounce your friend for mistreating his wife, whereas it could be easier to maintain, you know, um, to you know speak to repeat sort of the propaganda slogans of the regime about fighting out, fighting against, um, you know, disorder in the family or amoral behavior or things like that. Mm-hmm. And we'll come back to this uh, idea that Communist Party members were this high title represented a moral authority. Um, much more of an emphasis on that than on the ideological authority um, as we wrap this up. But before we do that, I'd like to talk about drunkenness because this was was a perennial problem in the Soviet Union and certainly in the post-war period, um, alcoholism and drunkenness um, continued to be a great concern. Yet you say that the party discipline system was poorly suited for the struggle with alcoholism. Why is mm-hmm. that? So I think you see a similar evolution in what the party is trying to do in these cases of people who drink too much or accused of habitual or systematic drunkenness as, you know, party misconducts hearings referred to it early in this period. I think that if you're drinking interfered with your job, you could get in a lot of trouble. If you miss work, if you show up late to work, things like that could be a major issue for you. Um, but if you just drank a lot under other circumstances, it's not that big a deal for party membership. I do see an evolution in how party discussions of heavy drinking, you know, how they go during this period. Um, early on, again, they're often connected to the labor. And it's a theme that remains because the regime is still really interested in ensuring that its members aren't so drunk that they can't do their job. But you start to see a shift. I see a lot of cases where the very first question a communist is asked about at a hearing when he's been accused of habitual drunkenness is, how does your drinking affect your family? How does it affect your children and the upbringing of new citizens? 
That's one shift. I think a similar shift is that, and again, I think this, this mirrors trends from around the world, is that early on, the language is all about drunkenness. And that remains. But I start to see discussions of alcoholism, of that term appearing more often, and of the need for medical treatment and things like that. And so I think the party has a real challenge at this moment. You know, again, throughout Soviet history, you know, there's a serious alcohol problem, and you see periodic efforts to fight that problem. You know, Gorbachev had his anti-alcohol campaign. Um, you know, um, Khrushchev does as well, which coincides with part of my book. But, you know, there's only so far they're willing to go for various reasons. Part of it, I think, you know, again, to get at why the party is not a good source for this. Drinking is connected to a lot of, you know, as it is everywhere, maybe more so in some ways. It's connected to a lot of social functions. And it's connected in various ways, I think, to advancements within the Communist Party. So I think there's an irony here that in order to advance as a communist, he probably had to go out drinking with other communists. He probably had to go out drinking with your boss. And so I think that that's a part of the social life of the Communist Party. But they want to de-emphasize it in various ways. But they still, you know, there's a problem for them, and everyone knows you'll need to you know, drink with your boss and so forth. Connected to that will be, in some of the hearings I've seen, I'm sure that, you know, um, the communist who's being accused of drinking sometimes drinks with the people who are discussing his case and accusing him. Uh, and so that leads to a certain level of, you know, you know it leads to various issues there, <laughs> to put it mildly. I think another part of this picture is that part of the story here, whether you're talking about drunkenness or whether you're talking about any party discipline issue, is that the party emphasizes this is not supposed to be a purely punitive function. It's not supposed to be about just expulsion and, you know, getting rid of people. You know, that's part of it. But they, they emphasize it's supposed to have an educational or a moral function. Vospitania is the Russian word for this. I think it's used a lot, which is sometimes translated as education, sometimes as moral education. It can be like the inculcation of values. It can be something a school does or a parent or, in this case, the party discipline process. And so there's always been rhetoric about teaching people, whether it's teaching the communists at a hearing what they should do by making an example of someone, or whether it's teaching that communist who's been accused of an offense. Um, and so I think part of what happens here is that you get a focus on communists who'll say, okay, you know, I've learned my lesson. And, you know, I'll, they often say, I'll quit drinking entirely. And, you know, the rhetoric of party discipline has been, it's been reformist. It's been educational in various ways. And I think that if you want to let your comrade off the hook for drinking, this gives you, an, uh, gives you the ability to do so. It means that you can do that in various cases. And I think combined with this is, even though the rhetoric of medical treatment and alcoholism as opposed to drunkenness has dramatically increased, you still get, lots of, you still get a sense from these files that you're still thinking in sort of a pre-alcoholism mindset. Of if you just show, you know, if you show willpower, 
And if you just, you know, act decisively, you can stop drinking and end the issue. And, you know, a lot of the people here needed medical treatment. You know, I think some of the cases I look at are just, you know, the cases of the people who drink way too much or with the wrong person. And they, they needed medical treatment of various kinds. And that wasn't going to be, they weren't getting it from a party discipline hearing, you know, whether they're expelled from the party or whether they, you know, promise to reform and are given the opportunity to do so, um, they end up, they don't get the treatment they need in the end. So again, I think this is a case where you end up with a lot more discussion of the problem in question. You get a lot more attention to the problem of, of drunkenness. I think I titled this chapter, um, I'll get the exact phrase wrong, I think, but we talk a lot, um, but you know we don't take concrete measures. And that's from one of these quotations of a guy of the sort I mentioned earlier, where it was a case that had come up several times. He promised to reform. They talked a lot about drunkenness, but in the end, they just said, sure, you know, you've, you've shown that you atoned for your sins. You've shown that you, um, you know, are, are happy to change. And so they let the person in the party, maybe giving them a more minor reprimand, and the problem remained pretty much as it had been before. As you went through all of these um, cases, these individual cases of party discipline, um, you assert that the, these internal investigations and disciplinary hearings confronted important questions, not just about what it meant to be a good communist, but also what it meant to be a good Soviet citizen. How did this, these changes and the various emphases that were um, occurring in party discipline roll out to broader society and what the Soviet authorities expected of uh, Soviet citizens? I think they, they, they apply to the larger population in a couple of different ways. I mean, for one thing, as I think I've mentioned, you know, communists are supposed to be role models and ideal citizens. So that I think for the party, this functioned in a couple different ways. For one thing, if they could shape the behavior of the party elite or, you know, the people who are in the communist party, that can in turn shape the behavior of other people in society. Um, you know, so that maybe getting people, you know, um, to change their behavior in one way or another would carry over. I think a second thing would be, even though this is an internal party process, there'd be plenty of cases where, you know, the messages they're sending about particular people end up spreading to other members, you know, of the population at large where I can think of lots of different cases where this is true. I can think of one case, which I believe you know, appears early on in my book, where it's a couple of Communist Party members, like you know, two communists who are married to each other, whose son is accused of hooliganism. And the party decides that the cause of this is sort of disorder within the family. The husband is a frequent philanderer. The wife is always getting into fights with him, for instance. So I think that's a case where the Communist Party leaders are obviously trying to shape the behavior of both members of the couple, especially the husband who gets into more trouble. They're trying to shape the behavior of the son. The case talks about how the other children in the family were mistreating the son who, who, you know, who'd been imprisoned and they made fun of him as a jailbird, I think was the term. So that, for instance, you know, 
the party is trying to shape the behavior of the communist children by shaping the behavior of the factory director in, in charge of, in, you know, of the factory director and his wife. And you know that when the husband is being thrown out of the party and is getting various reprimands, that a lot of the people in the factory party organization and who work in the factory in general are hearing the embarrassing details of the case, are hearing about this. And so I think they're being sent messages about good behavior as well. I think that's one small example of how, you know, the way when they discipline a communist, at least some of the time, a lot of the time, they have another audience in mind, which is other Soviet citizens. I think a second part of the answer would be they're trying to turn communists into sort of activists for their values. As they find that they can't expel as many people, they need to shape, you know, they need to fight social problems in different ways. And so I think at the same time, if you have party hearings about the need for a strong family and the need to speak out when you see people who are drinking too much or abandoning their children, the hope is you're sending a message to communists who not only will behave well themselves, but will become activists for the regime's values under Nikita Khrushchev and fight to sort of, you know, promote the party's message and the party's program throughout society in lots of different ways as well. And did the party membership seem to be internalizing that, that this idea that they are, in a sense, moral activists rather than ideological activists? I mean, how, I, I'm not sure how you would assess that, but mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I'm just wondering if you saw evidence of how um, how to what extent um, party members really saw themselves in that role as activists for, you know, the high title of communists and being morally sound citizens um, rather than, you know, you think about the origins of um, the communist party as very much being ideological activists. It's a, it's a different type of activism. Definitely. And in a way it is ideological activism of mm, promoting yes, the party's yeah. ideology about the family and stuff. I think that, it's a mixed picture when you look at these issues. Well, I'll say that a lot of these campaigns to push communists and other citizens to go out and you know argue against what the regime calls vestiges of capitalism or vestiges of the past. You know, a lot of that's sort of from the middle of the Khrushchev period, around fifty nine, sixty one, you know, in that period, and. I think that it ends up being a mixed picture. I'm sure there are some activists, some party members who are enthusiastic about the party's message and do go out and promote these kinds of values. At the same time, one thing I'd point out is that in a lot of these cases, if you look at cases in the family, for instance, the party's vision is that any citizen who sees some sort of vestige of the past will speak out against it. And so will, you know, um, directly confront a communist who is treating his children badly, say, or is treating his wife badly. What I find in party discipline cases is that most of these complaints come from the wife. You know, you, I occasionally have found a case of, you know, denunciations from sort of disinterested citizens that would come to the party most often, it's the wife comes to the local, you know, to the to her to her husband's primary party organization secretary, and says, you know, my husband 
has abandoned me or isn't paying child support or is drinking so much that it's causing problems in the home or whatever it is, it's the wife doing it, not the sort of disinterested citizen who's doing it. And I think that's one sign that, you know, it can be hard to really promote this, this message and to create this sort of voluntary, enthusiastic activism that Khrushchev wants, especially in these moments when he's trying to sort of rally the public, excuse me, to rally the public against vestiges of the past, against social problems, and so forth. Well, thank you for doing this interview, and thank you for doing it twice. And um, <laughs> I enjoyed talking to you about the book both times, and I enjoyed reading the book. And hopefully our listeners will um, pick up a copy themselves. Uh, and uh, to close, I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Sure. I've actually moved on to a, to a project that touches on some similar themes but in a somewhat different location and using different sort of institutions within Soviet history. Where what I'm looking at is the KGB's use of a tactic called prophylactica or prophylaxis, where instead of um, you know, arresting people who had committed a relatively minor offense, the KGB would, in its words, invite them to come by its offices for a chat about, you know, whatever it is, telling anti-Soviet jokes, consorting with a foreigner, something like that. So it builds, I think, on some of the same themes, in that it goes well beyond the party's intrusion into its members' private lives, but it looks at some of the more informal tactics that both the Communist Party under Khrushchev and, in some ways, the KGB, beginning at this time and moving forward, used to try to shape the behavior of the Soviet population um, in, my, in the case of this new project in the Baltic states, where you know KGB records are more, more common, but throughout the Soviet Union. Well, good. Um, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk to you in the future when that book comes out. Um, but once again, thank you very much for this interview. And thanks to our listeners. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. And please join us again. Thank you.